Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Like a bold champion, I assume the lists, nor ask advice of any other thought but faithfulness and courage. I am no viper, yet I feed on mother's flesh that did me breed. I sought a husband, in which labor I found that kindness in a father. He's father, son, and husband mild. I, mother, wife, and yet his child. How they may be, and yet in two, as you will live, resolve at you. Sharp physic is the last. But all your powers that give heaven countless eyes to view men's acts. Why cloud they not their sight perpetually? If this be true, which makes me pale to read it. Fair glass of light, I loved you. And good still, would not this glorious casket stored with ill? Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. My name is Tim McIntosh and you are just listening to Pericles from Act One of Shakespeare's play Pericles, in which Pericles is attempting, well, actually he's solving a riddle. More about that in a second. I have two new guests that I would like to introduce, and I think the best way to introduce them is this way. The last two guests that I had on the podcast were Christopher Perrin and Emily Maeda. Christopher and I did, Dr. Perrin and I did a two-part series on education and Shakespeare and how Shakespeare um, talks about virtue, the best ways, in my opinion, to teach Shakespeare to young people. Um, And so Dr. Perrin and I did a two-part audio. Now, currently, I am recording a five-part series on Richard III, Shakespeare's play, Richard III. Christopher Perrin was my second-to-last guest. My most recent guest was Emily Maeda. And now I am joined by Noah Perrin 
son of Christopher Perrin and Sophia Maeda, daughter of Emily Maeda. That is really nice in and of itself. And I just want to say welcome to each of you. Thank you for being part of the show today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, Sophia does a little bit of background work, so you've probably heard her voice before, but Noah is Noah is new here. Okay, now, I also want to say one more thing. You guys are engaged to be married in August. Congratulations to you both. <laughs> thanks, Tim. Yeah. Were you recently together? Were, Sophia, didn't you go out to Virginia to visit Noah recently? Yep, I got back an hour ago. You got, <laughs> we're throwing you right into a podcast. Oh, it's kind of like, it's kind of wonderful that you get to be together again. And it's also kind of tragic that you're now separated by what, like 2,000 miles of geography. I'm happy and sad for you. Yeah, we feel the same way, I think. It's a, a tragic comedy. Our it's life. a tragic comedy. That's a really nice segue, Noah. Okay, um, my understanding, Noah, I'm going to come to you first with a question. My understanding is that you either read Pericles or saw a performance of Pericles relatively recently, like in the last year, and you really enjoyed it. Am I right in saying that? Yes and no. Um, okay. Did not enjoy Pericles the first time that I read it, but I was fascinated by it because it was such a strange play. It was different from all the other Shakespeare plays I had read. And I had the pleasure of seeing it performed. And this performance changed my perspective on the play a bit. And I also I also was able to write a bit about the play because it was like a stone in my shoe all semester. Um, I was taking a, a course on Shakespeare. And um, and that also caused me to to consider elements of it that I hadn't before. But I would say to anyone who hasn't seen it performed there are things that come out in the performance that that don't that don't come through with just reading the play i'm sure we'll talk about that later well i, I would love to hear what are those things you read the play you're like gosh this is really peculiar and then you saw it do you remember the things that came out in the performance that you didn't pick up on in the reading uh absolutely i would say that one of the huge challenges uh to this play similar to the winter's tale is the blocking how do you mm. how do you decide to to block certain things because there's lots of things described by Gower the narrator um and this performance decided to show some of those so they were pantomimed uh, or mimed while Gower was describing them and and I actually found Oh that, really? Yeah, and I actually found this a clever device um, and it wasn't all the time, but but often. I also found that there's jarring elements to the play. There are sudden shifts that occur. And I think that the the theatrical performance of, of this, the presence of the actors, the the um the set, and um even just the viewing of the play directly in front of in front of an audience, that creates a kind of continuity that is lacking. And it also yeah. makes it makes you aware of the th the theatrical the theatrical element that might not be uh, the mood or the atmosphere that might not be as uh, present in the reading of it. I think things that are jarring um, in text are not as jarring uh -huh. when they are staged or filmed, and so that uh -huh. that medium is just a little different. 
And there are some things when you're seeing a live performance that are more jarring than the text presents. And I will throw out the first one because we heard part of the audio when we came onto the show. Pericles is reading the script of a riddle. The riddle is put to him by a father and, and Pericles is wooing the father's daughter. So I started this play very innocently, not thinking anything of it. I'm like, oh, here's a gentleman who is on a quest to woo a woman. And then you read the riddle and you're, gosh, like, that riddle is, is, I can't figure that riddle out. And what is the solution to the riddle, Noah? It, the so it, it's a terrible solution. It's a terrible uh, solution. Because to solve the riddle means realizing that the, the king, Antiochus, has an incestuous relationship with his daughter, who is the bride that Pericles is trying to win by solving right. the riddle. And it's this terrible moment because either he's killed if he doesn't solve the riddle or he tells the truth and will probably be killed for this because Antiochus is trying to keep this a secret um, yeah. to hide the meaning in the riddle. So it's very a very strange beginning and very much um, disappointing our expectations. Yeah. Like you, I started the play thinking this must be a typical chivalric tale. It's a scene that's maybe somewhat familiar uh, even in the Merchant of Venice and in other instances in Shakespeare, we have a kind of a saying or, or a trying test of one of the heroes. But this test ends up kind of being reversed in a way. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't serve as the beginning of a, like you said, I'm just going to echo what you said, of a chivalric quest, chivalric quest. It's the beginning of this long, strange, tumbling narrative at the center of it is Pericles, but the way that it begins and the way that it ends are so different. It's not the, the, the kind of conclusion of the play is not germane to the beginning at all. Okay. Sophia, um, you read the play recently, the kind of like a revelatory moment that Noah and I are just talking about. Did you pick up on immediately like what was going on or did you kind of like stumble through it and be like wait wait what is this going on what was your when did you discover what the solution to the riddle was no and i had talked about it a long time ago okay so you so knew you were kind of yeah yeah, yeah. so i was like ah darn <laughs> from the very yeah. from the very beginning yeah you guys let me let me just do a super quick synopsis of the play. So our readers, maybe our readers are kind of like tuning in for the first time. So it's basically a nautical tale of a wandering prince, Pericles. It's some, in some ways reminds me of Odysseus a little bit, only unlike Odysseus, you know, the clever riddler. My impression of Pericles, and we can talk more about this, is that he's like, he's the good hearted young man. He's, he's earnest. He, you know who he is? He's almost the opposite of Lear. Yeah. Lear is a tyrant who, whose ego is so big 
that he rages against God and nature itself. You know, blow, wind, crack your cheeks. He's calling, you know, like when thunder is raining down around him. He's like, bring it on, bring it on. And Pericles has one little moment of frustration against the gods. But for the most part, despite all of these tragedies, he accepts them. Yeah. Right? He accepts them. Okay, I'm getting, I'm getting away from the synopsis. Um, as Noah said, there is a poet, John Gower, from England's past, who comes on and gives monologues at the beginning of each act. And he explains that Pericles, Prince of Tyre, is hoping to win the hand of the princess in Antioch. When he discovers, does Pericles, that she and the king are lovers, he flees for his life. That brings him to Tarsus during famine. He has lost his ships in minute storm and he arrives in Tarsus. Then he goes to Pentapolis to win a tournament and marry the king's daughter. So it's like wooing round number two. The king's daughter name is Thaisa. With Thaisa pregnant, after they get together, he wins the tournament, does Pericles. He marries Thaisa. Now she's pregnant. Now we're on a boat again. We're sailing now for Tyre. And Thaisa, his wife, bears a daughter named Marina. But Thaisa dies, or does she? She seems to die. She's put into a coffin. The coffin drifts ashore at Ephesus, where, without knowing, without Pericles knowing it, she is revived and she becomes priestess for a priestess of Diana. Okay. Pericles, not thinking that Marina is not going to live, Marina being the daughter, leaves baby Marina with the king and queen of Tarsus. 14 years later, she's kidnapped by pirates, right? Pericles' daughter, kidnapped by pirates, and is sold to a brothel. You're like, this is turning into a total tragedy. But somehow, she's like, the, she's so eloquent and virtuous that it protects her. So all these men come in to use her and she basically convinces them to be good. And they leave one after the other. They leave convinced by her eloquence. So, okay, the conclusion of the play is Marina being brought back by another good young guy to the grief-stricken bed of Pericles, who's, you know, he's lost his wife, he's lost his daughter, and she returns to Pericles. And I think a beautiful scene that for me maybe makes up for the whole twist and tumble of the first four and a half acts is the reunion between Pericles and Marina and later Thaisa. It's a beautiful reunion. Okay. So I've just spoiled the play for everybody though. You probably know it's coming by act three. What's going to happen. You probably know what's going to happen. Um, and that is the synopsis of the play. Okay. My first question. Do we like Pericles? Sophia, do you like Pericles? I don't mean the play. I mean the, the character. The character himself? Yeah. I like him. I think I find him a bit boring compared to all the other Shakespeare characters. I was boring. not compelled by Pericles. Yeah. What does he I, lack? Uh, 
kind of a personality. <laughs> other than that, other than that, he's fine. So he just good. likes the personality. Yeah. He's so good, which just makes him a little bit one dimensional, I found. Mm-hmm. In the whole play. Other than at the end, and then the end, it was like, is this even the same guy? Which is fine because it's 14 years later. But I was not a huge fan. Sophia, your mom and I, when we're talking about Richard III, talk about, I mean, Richard III is about as close to a demonic character as Shakespeare wrote. You know, Iago from Othello is up there with like the most demonic characters. And we both kind of admitted to each other that there's something really perverse about you find yourself in Richard III rooting for Richard III, knowing just like what a what a villain he is. And there's something that we're, I think, a kind of drawn to. Mm-hmm. The complexity of these bad characters makes it makes for really compelling characters. Likewise, Lear, he's like his ego is dominating him and it's making him dominate his daughters. But Pericles, who is just good, is a little bit flat. I, I was thinking about, because there's so many, I was thinking about the winter's tale and I find mm-hmm. Leon so much more compelling than Pericles yeah. for yeah. a similar reason to Richard III. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Noah, um, any higher opinion of Pericles than, than Sophia? I'm afraid I, I share the same opinion that I find yeah. him dimensional. Also things happen to him so quickly. So we don't get to see him often respond to an event for a long period of time because some other event is happening to him. So he tries one thing and then he tries another thing and then he shipwrecked and he gets married, then he loses his wife. And so he's constantly reacting to things as they occur, but we don't get to see a kind of sustained meditation on Pericles' Mm -hmm. part. I think the closest thing we see is in the first act um, is is that one scene. So it's not like, uh, Hamlet, where we get to see a character struggling with um, a question um, for the, and for the whole play, right? And so there's just not a depth to his character. Also, note that you know Aristotle in his rules about tragedy says that we don't want to see someone overly virtuous suffer, mm. but we want to mm-hmm. see the sort of man who is not preeminently virtuous and just, and yet through no badness or villainy of his own falls into bad fortune. Uh, or sorry, it's not through any badness or villainy that he falls into bad fortune, but through his own a flaw in himself. Yeah. And so yeah. that that flaw seems to be missing from Pericles. We don't see a reason for him to suffer the way he does. And so I think that that has a strange effect on the way we view him as a character. It's um, a great point. It's such a great point. I, Shakespeare is, for the most part, great at following. Aristotle's rules, right? We think like Macbeth, Mm -hmm. this like begins as a reasonably good man and we slowly see him decay as he kind of like falls to his own ambition. And you're right. I think this is a play that, that kind of like throws Aristotle in the backseat of the car and just kind of keeps driving toward like bridges that have been washed out by, you know, the river. And poor Pericles has to suffer all of like tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Does that, does that make the reunion 
with his wife and with his daughter less satisfying. It's a beautiful moment, but it is, is it less satisfying because he is, he is suffering unjustly. He's not done any harm. I feel like Marina kind of stole the show for me there. And it was more how, like her reunion and it felt more about her than anybody else for me that she, it was kind of, that was what was more compelling for me at the end was her reunion with both of her parents because she had suffered so much injustice. Well, still for no reason of her own. So I don't know, maybe not, maybe it isn't. Sophia, I'm going to come to you in a second. Noah, Sophia, I'm going to throw, um, I'm going to make, I'm going to make, throw an idea at you. Okay. Um, the play would work better for us if we were Elizabethan and yep. we had a stronger notion that the kind of virtue of Pericles almost through his bloodline is inherited by his daughter. Yeah. Like we have... It, yeah, yeah. I think you I think you guys would agree. Like we have a much stronger sense of like nurture, like the parents nurture the child into goodness and the child of course chooses to kind of like accept it or reject it, but we don't have a really strong sense that like goodness resides in the bloodstream, that nobility is part of someone's DNA and if you're their child you inherit the kind of like virtue DNA of the of the mom or the dad, right? And so do you think the the play might work better, Sophia, for an Elizabethan who has like a stronger sense of like virtue DNA? <laughs> you, see, you don't want to even give that, do you? I don't, I mean, maybe I guess, I mean, I guess that's what the, kind of the whole Indians back and forth is about, I ha- I'm of a noble birth and that's mm-hmm. kind of all of it is I'm of noble birth. So maybe, I don't know. Yeah. It just, I, there were too many loose ends. Maybe I'm still frustrated with the too many loose ends, so I can't find it compelling because of that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Noah, I cut you off earlier. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say, I, I agree with Sophia here that I feel Marina does steal the show a bit mm. in the last section of the play, particularly because her virtue seems to be almost superhuman. Pericles is a virtuous guy. He wants to do the right thing. But he makes a lot of mistakes. You know, he mm-hmm. he puts his wife into the sea when she's not dead. Um, you know, that seems a little bit hasty. Uh, yeah. It's Saruman that says this rashly, this was rashly done or something mm. of that akin. Um, but Marina is able to, when she speaks, her, her words have this power that's able to, as you expressed, um, make other people virtuous who didn't seem to be yeah. virtuous. And so it does seem yeah. that, that, but I I think that the last the last act is the coming together of those two streams because Pericles kind of takes a back seat and Marina is in the fore she's the main character for a while and then the two streams seem to come together in act in the last act and it's a, this really really beautiful moment I find it one of the more moving scenes in Shakespeare that I've ever read it reminds really? me of Cordelia. And Leah yes. and their reunion, which also is a really touching, terrible. It's it's interesting to compare them because one is is so sad, um, but they're but they both have this deep tenderness 
and and um, I, I I do think that maybe it it the diminishment is that our our um, well, I also think a third, sorry, I'm wondering. No, please. But I think a third reunion that's worth considering is the one uh, of Leontes and uh, Hermione mm-hmm. in The mm-hmm. Winter's Tale, because they're all scenes where something is sort of restored or returned. There's a reunion that we didn't maybe anticipate, or or maybe we did, but that seems to the characters like it was beyond hope. Yes, that this would occur. That this sort of reconciliation, this sort of reunion, would happen, and they all are very moving, and they all have similar elements. Um, but I think that uh, whereas in in Lear and in Leontes, we feel that there's a kind of um, grace that's been given to them, yeah, that, that was totally unearned and undeserved. In this moment, um, with Pericles, there's a sense of poetic justice. <laughs> you know, yeah. that man has suffered his whole life; everything has gone miserably, and that at last, this beautiful moment, something has been returned to him. Um, it's it's, uh, and so that feels a little different, I guess. The last, so Pericles is, they think, one of the last four plays that Shakespeare wrote. And it comes after the period of his great tragedies. So Hamlet, Macbeth, Lear, Coriolanus, etc. And these last plays are often called romances, not in the way that we mean romance, like the romance between a man and a woman, but, but romances almost like think magical or mythical. So in The Winter's Tale, I'm so glad you brought it up, Noah, is also grouped among these romances, this last batch of plays. And when Hermione is reunited with Leontes, it happens after she is presumably executed in Act Three. And Shakespeare gives no real explanation about how she is alive. Did she come back to life? Was she, was she somehow spared? Shakespeare gives us no like evidence as to why that happened. And so there's this little touch of magic, this little kind of sprinkling of the supernatural makes the reunion between husband and wife so beautiful and a little bit kind of mythical. This play is similar in that you have this really unexpected reunion between husband and wife, and Pericles and his daughter. But all of the kind of physics of it is out in the open, right? Like, like um, Thaisa is actually, she's set forth in a coffin, she's believed to be dead, and then the per- first person she kind of like meets is a doctor who has great ability with medicine and he knows how to bring her back to life. And so there's kind of like, the the magic is kind of given an explanation. There's not much supernatural in it. Nevertheless, by the time we get to the end of the play, it does feel like, oh my gosh, we we never dared believe that this reunion could to, could take place, right? 
Yeah. Um, I want to take us to act two for a second. We're kind of jumping around, but act two, Pericles, um, after having suffered his, after running away, after like solving the riddle, running away, after being shipwrecked, he's kind of out on his own and he hears about this tournament in which he can win the hand of Thaisa, who will eventually become his wife. When he approaches her, he approaches her with a little, it's like a, a, a twig or a branch that looks to be dead except for a sprout on the end of it. And tied to it is a little piece of Latin. I am in the room with two Latin scholars and I am not a Latin scholar. Um, I'm going to ask Noah, can you remember what the Latin phrase was and can you make a translation for us? The phrase I believe was in hoc spe vivo. So in, in this hope I live. Is that his motto? Yes, and every Pericles night, is the life motto. Well, every night is it's an interesting question because every night brings this motto, a, a different motto to the tournament, and that's his motto. And I do feel like it's it's a, an image of his whole life mm. as a branch that has a little sprig. And um, I, I even wonder. I feel after reading the whole play that while we see him responding with virtue, um, mm. that hope is is a kind of defining trait of Pericles, um, because he, he gets shipwrecked and <laughs> his armor is returned to him from the sea. The fishermen find it and his immediate, and he hears about a tournament and his immediate thought is I'm going to enter this tournament and this <laughs> tournament is going to change my fortune. My fortune yeah. is on to rise. And so there's something, um, I think that's part of what makes him a likable character for me is that, that, that deep hope that he has, um, and it's it's curious that that feels it feels like a rather existential comment to attach as a motto for for entering a tournament to win a lady. You know, it's um, almost an existential. You say it's almost an existential comment. What do you mean? An existential motto in in this, and I think that um, Thaisa and and the king are a bit perplexed. Simonides, they're a bit perplexed by this motto. Huh? What does this mean? In in this hope I live. Um, it's as if he's a sort of staked all of his life in this moment. Mm, you know, mm. here I am, my rusty armor. I've got nothing left. I've got nothing else to hope for, but I'm staking all of my hope in this in this moment. And it does seem like it's not as much about the woman um, in, at first when he hears about the tournament. Um, he, he And it doesn't seem also like he's, He's trying to achieve a high station. He already has the station. He's already a prince. But but it seems like he feels that his fortunes could be turning. Um, that yeah. he's, he's been suffering at fortune's hand and that there's a shift that's going to happen. And he's he's going to 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 risk everything, to venture everything. Um, Sophia, is it? Do you agree with what Noah said? It's it seems less about the woman, this um winning this tournament. Yeah, I think so. I think I 
I was thinking about it as the existential motto because I actually, the one time I found him interesting was when he wasn't hopeful at the very end and he won't speak to anybody. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. why I found him interesting yeah. because that seems like when it, it that motto kind of lasts in some ways. Mm. Um, but I think it is true because it, we come right after the scene where it seems like a miraculous thing that his armor has come back. So it's kind oh, of. Oh, right, right. It's like kind of, it felt like a kind of miraculous thing. And it has the he makes a comment about his bracelet, about his bracelet being the only thing that stayed on his body. Mm. And it was like I was reading a note about it. It's like his father's bracelet. Um, and so that seems like this uh that makes me think it is more like it is beyond just the woman. Like he is staking this. I my I don't know what his, the hope is, but it's beyond the woman. Noah's comment resonates with me because I'm thinking about um, after the tournament, he's won, and you would think that he would be like, all right, where's my bride? Where's my girl? But instead, he's um, taking the lower position at the tables. You know, he doesn't seem to be like, you know, like asking for his just reward or anything like that the king has to kind of like bring him into a position the king and the other competitors have to bring him into kind of a position of um i don't know recognition and so it it does seem like just by winning the tournament he has satisfied his goal right and i don't want to make it sound like thais is like unimportant to his aims i think she is but i think that his affection for her kind of grows after he's won the after he's won the tournament does that seem fair yeah i think so because he's kind of shocked when she he gets the letter afterwards right like she writes him a letter and he's shocked yes by yeah yeah that's right that's right right yeah, how could you be shocked dude how could you be shocked Okay, I have a question for you guys. And while you're thinking about the answer, I'm going to do a little housekeeping, okay? Here's my question for you. Um, someone in Great Britain polled Brits about what plays from Shakespeare they had seen or read. And they made a list of the most popular all the way to least popular of Shakespeare's plays. My question is two parts. Number one, can you tell me the three most popular plays? And part two, where in the list of 37 plays do you think Pericles falls? Okay, so that's what, our, that's what I'm going to come back to. What do you think of the three most popular Shakespeare plays according to this little rubric? Like plays that Britain's no, because they've read it or seen it. And where in the list of 37 falls Pericles? Housekeeping. Um, this podcast is platformed by the Circe Institute, C-I-R-C-E. We have a people who, of course, who follow the show and who want to engage in the show and they want to talk about whether Pericles is a compelling character or not. That has been happening on a Facebook page associated with our parent podcast, which is called 
the Close Reads podcast. The Close Reads podcast is still going on. It started a Facebook page. And whenever people wanted to weigh in on the plays, the thing, that's where they weighed in. But people at Searcy have started a new platform circle. Searcy Circle Overdue Classics. So if you just Google Searcy, and that's C-I-R-C-E, Circle Overdue Classics, you will find the platform for this show and for other classics that are kind of being discussed by the Searcy community. The Searcy community is all about the renewal of Christian classical education. Dr. Perrin, Noah's dad, is a really influential voice there. So is Emily Maeda. She started and is, gosh, headmaster of the Paideia School in Fort Collins, Colorado. So all three of us are kind of staked and invested in the renewal. And the Searcy Institute is kind of at the vanguard of that renewal. So if you want to weigh in about this show, just Google Searcy Circle Overdue Classics and you will meet a bunch of friends that you'd never knew you had. Back to my question. I'm coming to Noah first and then to Sophia second. Noah, top three most popular plays and then where do you think Pericles falls? Oh, goodness. That's a hard one, especially because it's a Britain's. Uh, uh, right, right. <laughs> because I think I would say, if I were judging by an American audience, maybe Hamlet, number one, number two, Macbeth, number three, A Midsummer Night's Dream. But I think mm -hmm. that's probably going to be totally wrong. Those would be the three, I think, that I would I'd put... Okay. Uh, Pericles, for an American audience, I would say dead last. Bold claim. I love it. Uh, Sophia. I put Hamlet, Much Ado, and Midsummer. Okay. And Lear is fourth, but I thought Lear maybe ranked higher. I thought okay. it was, I remember this being higher than I thought. So I put 20th. 20th for Pericles. Yep. Okay. Here are the answers. The most popular play, according to percentage of British people, the most popular Shakespeare play is Romeo and Juliet, followed by Macbeth, followed by Midsummer Night's Dream. So, Great. nicely done. Nicely done. Pericles falls in the list of 37 plays dead last dead last it barely falls it it falls below timon of athens oh. and troilus and cressida yeah so it's not it's not the most popular play and there are theories and i wonder if you guys are aware of it there are theories that shakespeare only wrote the last three acts do you are you familiar with these ideas do you find them at all plausible you find it plausible, Sophia? How come? How come? I felt like there was a shift after two, and I couldn't really put my uh -huh. finger on it. And then I was reading about it, and I was like, oh, maybe that's it. It was, I don't know. It seemed like maybe the rhyming was a little bit different. It got, it was a little bit less. And two or three, four, and five just felt more like Shakespeare. One and two, I, I don't know who it felt like, but it did not feel like Shakespeare. 
Yeah. The, the first two acts have all these, speaking about the rhymes, all these A-B, A-B rhymes, like these, these very simple A-B, A-B rhyme, excuse me, A-A-B-B rhymes. Um, and then I noticed the exact same thing. Like midway through act three, I was like, oh, we're starting to cook a little bit. What's going on here? And there wasn't that those simple rhyming schemes had, they weren't completely gone, but they were maybe a little bit less prominent. No, did you sense the same thing where you're like, where's my Shakespeare during the first two acts? Definitely. And I tried not to read too much about this before I read the play so that I could judge it with fresh eyes. But I felt yeah. that it, it was notably different in its feel than than Shakespeare's typical style. There were things that didn't seem like him. And I think the, the chief thing was the character arcs um, felt too short. Mm. I think that he likes to really dwell with a character and bring out certain elements that that come to full circle. And I, I think that that happens in this play, but I just, I felt like all of the shifts I think we can point to similar plays that are kind of in the same romance genre that that have a kind of arc that seems Shakespearean. But I feel that, yeah. that um, some elements of this felt a little contrived in ways that um, didn't seem so familiar. Uh, I would say just on the point of popularity to revisit that briefly. Yeah. Yeah, I have read that this was one of the most popular plays in its day of Shakespeare's, and I don't, I uh, don't quote me on that. Right, right. I think that that's interesting too. Um, so, I, and and I think some have wondered if the version we have is the not the quite the same as the version mm. that we performed. I know there's all sorts of questions, but I do wonder if um, our, you know, our appetite is different than that of uh, Victorian England. And that this sort of historical sort of um, tragic comedy, I don't know what we want to call the genre, romance. Right, right, right. That, that yeah. might've been something, this might've been something that would be more popular than, than what we are. I, it almost, when I saw it staged, I don't know if you've seen it staged, Tim, or you have seen I, I've seen a, I've seen a video done by the BBC, so it's not a live performance. But when you saw it staged, you said. It kind of reminded me a little bit of an action film. Um, really? It had elements that were very, it, it had a cinematic feel to it, the way the scenes were, were, were moving along and there was so much action in it. And there was so much, which, so much drama. And so actually, I wonder if that that could be more popular if we turned to the theater as a source for that kind of entertainment. I think when most people go to a Shakespeare play, they're just expecting something entirely different than what they see. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the movies that sell out now are Marvel movies and Fast and Furious 10. I mean, to your point, they're action films, you know? They're not contemplative, moody pieces full of symbolism and, you know, deep character. Of course, you know, we'll have a movie every once in a while that comes along and storms the box office. But for the most part, the movies that make money are action movies and maybe Pericles 
was just an action movie, like a really great, like beautifully poetic action movie. And and I don't mean that to demean the 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 real depth to it. Right. It, right. Well, I just mean that it has this this element that I think you don't experience when you're reading it. Um, and it takes a really good production to bring out. Yeah. Um, um we talk a lot about the, the show about what a profound difference a director can make in Shakespeare. That's true. I mean, across the board, you know, like you need a really great director, but sometimes I, I appreciate that a lot of directors approach Shakespeare as if he's kind of a canvas. He's supplied you characters and themes. And my job as a director are to kind of bring the kind of thematic color to the play. And I remember I was living in Oregon and I went to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. So a little bit about that. The opening audio that we heard today was from a 1957 production from the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. It's one of the longest running Shakespeare festivals in North America. And it's a, if you ever are in Ashland, Oregon, stop what you're doing and go to a Shakespeare play there. They're extraordinary, just extraordinary. And I went to go see a Shakespeare play in Ashland. And I can't remember what one I chose to see, but it was like kind of like one of the sturdy, you know, you, you, you know, this play, it was like Macbeth or something like that. And it was a really good production. And I walked out and I was talking to some people that, you know, were walking on the sidewalk and, and they said they were regulars at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And I said, so what's the play to see this year? And they said, it's Pericles. They're doing Pericles and it's just incredible. And I was like, Pericles, who sees Pericles? But apparently the director was just incredible and they made just a magnificent work out of it. So I, this is not my favorite Shakespeare play, but I totally <laughs> acknowledge that a good director can really like make a wonder out of it. Yeah. Completely believable. Um, will you guys allow me to do just like a little bit of Shakespeare nerdiness? Um, one of the evidences that scholars point to that Shakespeare wrote the last three acts of this play, but not the first two, is that there's an absence of enjambment. The, do you guys know the poetical term enjambment? Noah, do you know it well enough to kind of give a definition of it? Sure. So enjambment, um, a line that's not enjammed the end of the sentence is going to fall at the end of the line, nice and neat. Mm -hmm. A line that's enjammed is going to be split so that the sentence will run into the next line. And in, in Shakespeare, that can give the effect of creating verisimilitude with speech. Mm -hmm. Because if every line stops, and I think what Sophia was referring to earlier, we all sense that with not only the rhyme scheme, but the fact that sentences were ending very neatly at the end of the line, it is less, uh, is more apparent that the play is following a strict meter. Whereas when you enjam the line and it runs into the next line, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, in this, but then you you feel that there's a natural flow to the speech. Oh, for for sure. The um, the lines from the Tempest from Prospero's last great speech, 
we are such stuff as dreams are made of and our little life, it should in there. That's where the line ends, but that's not where the thought ends. We are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep. That would be an example of of enjambment. And Shakespeare is not the only Elizabethan poet to use that technique, but he used it, he was masterful at it. And it shows up a lot in the last three acts. Not very much in the first two acts. Yeah, I think, I think, Sophia, you picked up on it. You picked up on it like the kind of, I, I would call it maybe wooden. Maybe you have a better word for the kind of poetic, I don't know, meter or feeling from the first two acts it kind of felt like cardboard but you know (laughs) cardboard (laughs) that's right yeah yeah all kind of like hard angles and yeah It it felt very clean yeah and cleanness to some degree um suppresses vitality yeah absolutely I mean, Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's poetry is so, it just like spills off the, off the page. Um, and whoever our poet was for the first two acts, um, it, it just did not have that kind of crackling vitality that we know so well as Shakespeare's prose. It makes it killer to read. Those but first it, two it, almost didn't make it through. It's Those just a labor. You're just like grinding through. <laughs> yeah. Even yeah. listening, I listened to it. Yeah. Even that was horrible. I'm Speaking of it. listening, go ahead, Noah. Sorry. I want to push back just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't find parts of the first act a total bore. Mm. I found some of the some of the, the the chiming and the rhyming and the the very neat meter to be interesting in. Because just precisely for the reason you articulate, Tim, because so much of Shakespeare and so much, I think, of, I think a lot of people, myself included, only read Shakespeare and don't read enough mm. other plays from that era. And so I think that we're so used to that style, that, that, that vital, that, um, yeah, carefully enjambed, carefully, um, disruptive meter that Shakespeare has in his iambic pentameter that, um to us that that clean meter can feel distasteful and sing songy mm. but mm. but for some of the riddle and for some of pericles response i felt like it kind of it it elevated the um it had a musicality to it yeah um that was very um i don't know it was it was interesting it created an entirely different atmosphere certainly not a, a shakespearean one right um but but it reminded me a little bit of the play within the play in Hamlet. Um, yes. I don't know yes. why, but there's a kind yeah, of, no. funny, you know, element into the, to the speech that they have because he's kind of maybe trying to make it not a Shakespeare play that they're watching. Yeah. Um, and that, um, I don't know. I just found it interesting. I didn't find it a bore, but I, I recognize, I think all your criticisms, both of your criticisms are fair of the meter. Um, it's absolutely true that it works for the riddle, the kind of ba-bump, 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 ba-bump. That, that really does work for the riddle. That's a point well taken. And also, yeah, the play within the play in Hamlet, um, there's a way in which you can, you can kind of ham it up a little bit. I'm not trying to make a pun there. 
you can ham it up because I think you're exactly right, Noah. There is a very deliberate attempt to kind of sing in a different voice for Shakespeare so that we know this is, or we have a sense that we're watching something that was not constructed by him. And that's a great point. Um, speaking of listening, I would like to close you guys after I thank you for being on the show with um, part of the reunion between Pericles and Marina. It's the real highlight of the play. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. And it's the, the recording that we're going to play for you is Judy Dench playing the role of Marina, Dame Judy Dench. Um, a heralded actress. She's even been appearing in the James Bond movies, like the the relatively recently James Bond movies. Anyway, and the other actor who will be playing Pericles in the recording is by one of my all-time favorites, Paul Schofield. He um, is a British actor. He shows up in the movie The Crucible. He's also in quiz show and his performance of Lear I can't remember what year it was it would have probably been in the 50s was voted performance of the century by the British public he was just a an incredible voice and any chance that I have to keep his voice alive um especially among Shakespeare fans I consider it a victory uh Noah and Sophia Thanks so much for being on the show. Um, tell us how wedding preparations are going, if you don't mind. Are you? Is it a trial? Is it somewhat fun? Where are you guys with that? It's really fun. Is it's it really? Being, yeah, it's said not being together. We got to do some together, but it's fun. Yeah, yeah. It's really fun to do it all. I, can, can you even wait to have all of your people in one big place at one time no. do, you, do you like what do you anticipate that's going to be like i'm sure it'll be overwhelming but yeah. overwhelming in, a, in a good in a good way because yeah. a lot of our our friends know each other but there's so many family and friends that don't and so having them all in one place will be uh, a, a tremendous yeah yeah before galen and i got married and we barely beat you guys to it, by the way. We've only been married a year and like two months. Um, <laughs> friends would say, you won't even remember your wedding day. You won't remember the rehearsal dinner. You won't remember the reception. And we were like, yeah, we will. Like, I don't know why we thought that. We just thought, yeah, we will. We'll remember it. And to this day, of course, I remember our faces at the reception. But if you ask me, like, Sophia, you were at my wedding what you and I talked about at the reception, couldn't tell you, got no idea. <laughs> no idea. Do you remember your speeches? Do you remember the toast that people gave for you? I do. I do remember those. I, in fact, we remember those really vividly. But but they're so different from just like the face-to-face -face everyday conversations that we had. Whereas I feel like normally at a wedding that I'm not in, if I'm just having a conversation with somebody, I remember the conversations, but I don't remember any of the conversations. Yeah, but yeah I do. I do remember the speeches very well. Very, very well. Um, thank you both for being on the show. And let's close by listening to Paul Schofield as Pericles and Judy Dench as Marina. I am a maid, my lord that ne'er before invited eyes 
that have been gazed on like a comet. She speaks, my lord, that may be, hath endured a grief might equal yours, if both were justly weighed. Though wayward fortune did malign my state, my derivation was from ancestors who stood equivalent to mighty kings. But time hath rooted out my parentage, and to the world and awkward casualties bound me in servitude. I will desist. But there is something glows upon my cheek and whispers in mine ear. Go not till he speak. My fortunes, parentage, good parentage to equal mine. Was it not thus? What say you? I said, my lord, if you did know my parentage, you would not do me violence. I do think so. Pray you, turn your eyes upon me. You are like something What countrywoman? Here, of these shores? No, nor of any shores. Yet I was mortally brought forth, and am no other than I appear. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.